0: Hebrews chapter 9. Let me read for us verses 11 through 14. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not part of this creation. He did not enter... By means of the blood of goats and calves. But he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they're outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. When the Allies invaded Normandy on June 6, 1944, the British Prime Minister Winston Churchill intended to join the expeditionary forces and watch the invasion from the bridge of a battleship in the English Channel. General Eisenhower, who led the Allied effort, thought that was reckless and irresponsible. If German spies learned the prime minister was aboard, he would become the Luftwaffe's prime target. But Churchill was not one to back down. So Eisenhower appealed to King George himself. The king told Churchill that if it was the prime minister's duty... To witness the invasion, that it was surely also the king's duty to be aboard that ship. Only then did Churchill yield, knowing that the king's life could not be put at risk. But in Jesus, we have a king who did put his life at risk. More than that, who surrendered his life. On the cross, he offered, as Philip Reichen put it, a king's ransom his life for the life of his people. He died for the wrong things we've done and made atonement for our sins. Verses 11 through 14 have been rightly called the heart of this letter. They are the heart because here we arrive at the heart of the message. We turn from religious externals to spiritual internals, from hand to heart. We know that this passage is important because of the way verse 11 begins. Our author rarely, only one other time, uses the word Christos, Christ, to start a sentence. And only here does he do it to start an entire section. A first century Greek reader would take that as very emphatic and realize that our author considers what he's about to say especially important. Look at verse 11. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here. Now, just pause there for a moment. When Christ came, where? We might naturally assume that our author is thinking of Christ coming to earth. But I don't think that's what he has in mind. Both the context and the use of the unusual word that's translated as came are against it. We could translate when Christ arrived, but where did he arrive? I think in the context he arrived, in heaven, in the place of God's presence, the holy of holies. He went through, this is verse 11, the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not part of this creation. Notice that he is high priest of the good things that are already here. The Greek word for already is not in the text. The NIV adds that to bring out the aorist tense of the verb. These good things have come. They've already begun. Our author wants his readers to understand that the new order of verse 10, the Reformation, has arrived. It arrived with the resurrection of Christ. It would make no sense for his readers to go back to the old order. Not now. Imagine you have a mobile phone contract with a a regional cellular company that has recently been absorbed into a a different, larger company with a global reach. The new company's acquired your contract and promised you no more dropped calls, a 4G network, unlimited data, a better price. Would you reject the new contract and insist that everything go back to the way it was? Well, some of the Hebrew's first readers we were on the verge of doing something like that, of rejecting the new way that had been opened up for them and retreating into the old ways. But my cell phone illustration fails in this. A smaller company in my illustration was bought out by a larger one, but in the book of Hebrews, both the old order with its covenant and its worship rituals and the new order with Christ our high priest are under the same management. Christ was not an adjustment to God's eternal plan. He was its fulfillment. Now, chapter 8 told us that Christ, raised and ascended, serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Here in verse 11, the place is described as the greater and more perfect tabernacle that's not man-made. That is to say, not part of this creation, The heavenly tabernacle is differentiated from the earthly one, which was man-made. Literally, that's hand-made. The first tabernacle was made according to God's specifications. God gave the specs, but he employed human agents, Moses and lots of other people, to produce it. It was hand-made. The tabernacle in which Christ now serves is not hand-made, but made directly by God. There's an interesting use of that word handmade in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. There he employs the word tent, which our author in Hebrews uses of the tabernacle. He uses that word to refer to our physical bodies. They are wasting away, he says, outwardly, and will sooner or later fall down. The tent stakes will be pulled. The tent's going to collapse. We call that death. Death. But when that happens, we will have, this is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1, a heavenly building, no longer a tent, but a building, a mansion, a skyscraper, that is not handmade. Our bodies were designed by God, but he employed human agents to produce them, our parents. But our resurrection body will not be produced through human agents. Each one of us will be a work of art, divine art. And they will be glorious. He will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Heaven and all its occupants will be a magnificent display of the artist's genius. A display that the artwork itself can appreciate. Now look at verse 12. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves. But he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The word translated, blood, appears 20 times in the letter to the Hebrews, but only once before this chapter, and then as part of an Old Testament quotation. But here in chapter 9, our author uses that word 10 times. It's clearly of the utmost importance to him. Under the first covenant, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies, that sacred space where God evidenced his presence. He entered it on the Day of Atonement, but never, verse 7, without blood. He sprinkled the blood of sacrificial animals on the atonement cover, the mercy seat, it was called, of the Ark of the Covenant. Under the New Covenant, some things change and some do not. The blood of goats and calves are no longer the entrance fee into the tabernacle. They were in the earthly sanctuary, but not in the heavenly sanctuary. That's changed under the New Covenant. But the necessity of blood has not changed. The high priest of the new covenant entered the heavenly sanctuary with blood, but it was his own blood, not that of a sacrificial animal. No bull or goat ever volunteered to be a sacrifice, but Christ did. He, verse 14, offered himself. They went unwillingly, he went willingly. When we get to chapter 10, we're going to see a lot more about that. You might be thinking, okay, but what is this thing with blood? Blood, blood, blood. I mean, it freaks some people out. Harry Emerson Fosdick sneered at the kind of Christianity that emphasizes the blood of Christ. He called it a slaughterhouse religion. That's a slaughterhouse religion. Niels Ferrer said the blood of Christ cannot wash away sin any more than the blood of a chicken. The blood of Christ was an offense to them, as it is to many people today. I mean, isn't blood sacrifice something that belonged to the savage age, to religions of the past? Haven't we outgrown that kind of thing? In an enlightened society, shouldn't religion be about morals and high ethical standards? not about blood and death. When the movie The Passion of the Christ was released in Italy... And the Italian author Riccardo Zaccone refused to let his kids go see it. Because, as he explained, I want them to have the idea of the spirituality of Christ, not this idea of debauchery. The soul of Jesus is important, he said, not his body. People want a, a clean, sterile, sanitized religion that's moral and ethical and above all spiritual. We just love spiritual these days. Not a religion that's flesh and blood. They want the soul of Jesus, not his body. There's just one problem with that. The refined, sanitized religion doesn't work. And it can't work because it doesn't line up with the way the world really is. The world Christ entered is a world of flesh and blood, so we have an incarnation. It's a world of pain and death, so we have a passion. It's a world of sacrifice and blood. And so we have a crucifixion, a religion that has nothing to do with these things, with flesh and blood and pain and death, has nothing to do with us. The Anglican scholar John Stott put it this way. I can almost hear him say this in, in that lulling English accent of his. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I turned to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness, That is the God for me, says Stott. He set aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death, and that's the God for me, too. If you want a bloodless religion, you can have it. But I want the real thing is it can only appear in the real world. I want the real God who is able to sympathize with our weakness, who knows us, who became one of us, in spite of where that would inevitably lead. In Disappointment with God, Philip Yancey retells Henry Nowen's story about a family he knew in Paraguay. When the father, a doctor, spoke out against the human rights abuses of the military regime, the local police arrested his son and took revenge on him by torturing his son to death. The townsfolk were outraged, and they wanted to turn the boy's funeral into a protest march. But the father had a different idea. At the funeral, he displayed his son's body exactly as he'd found it in the jail. Naked, scarred from electric shocks and cigarette burns, bruised by beatings, The entire village filed past the corpse, which still lay on the blood-drenched mattress from the jail cell. The Father put all the horrible injustice on display for everyone to see. Yancey tells that story, and then he asks, Isn't that what God did at Calvary? The cross that held Jesus' body naked and marked with scars exposed all the violence and injustice of the world. At once, the cross revealed what kind of world we have and what kind of God we have. A world of gross unfairness. A God of sacrificial love. We say, why all this blood? In the Bible, blood represents life. Sometimes, read Leviticus 17. It goes on and on about blood and bloodshed and how blood should be handled. The reason we're told is that the life of the flesh is in the blood. To shed blood is to lose life. To offer blood is to offer life. Every animal sacrifice, and there are hundreds of thousands of them, perhaps millions, was the offer of a life for a life. When Christ offered his blood, he offered his life. For hours, a perfect life for imperfect ones, a sinless life for sinful ones, an eternal life for mortal ones. The blood of all those animal sacrifices, like the tabernacle itself and all its accoutrements, pointed forward, pointed to Christ. It was never an end in itself. It could make the ceremonially unclean ritually acceptable, but that, verse 13, was all it could do. It was about externals, about rights. It changed a person's religious status, not his heart. But the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of his life on our behalf, can change us on the inside, can change who we are. One thing that it changes, that external rights could never change, is the conscience. Verse 14 says that the blood of Christ, unlike the blood of ritual sacrifice can cleanse our consciences. It changes us, our lives, our outlooks, our hopes, and even our regrets. The conscience is that part of us that shares knowledge with God. The Greek word actually means something like shared knowing. The Bible says a good deal about the conscience. It speaks of a good conscience, a clear conscience, a bad conscience, a corrupt conscience, a guilty conscience and a conscience that has been seared, a seared conscience. A person can have a clear conscience that's not a good conscience. Your conscience may be clear, but that doesn't mean it's working right. It may be corrupted, sort of like the hard drive on your computer, so that it's no longer reliable. Some years ago, USA Today interviewed the actress Sophia Loren, and one of the things she talks about was religion. She said, I don't go to church, I don't take communion. But, and then I quote, I pray, I read the Bible, I should go to heaven. I haven't done anything wrong. My conscience is very clean. I should go straight, straight to heaven. Now, Ms. Loren's conscience was clear. That doesn't mean it was good. It may be working well, I'm certainly not her judge, but it may not be. I don't know Sophia Loren, but many people have a clear conscience only because they have a bad memory. Not long ago, the Josephson Institute conducted a character survey of nearly 30,000 students from 100 randomly selected high schools. They found that 64% of students said they cheated on a test in the past year. 30% had stolen from a store. 42% said they would lie to save money. 83% said they had lied to their parents about something significant. That doesn't surprise me. That sounds like me when I was that age. Now, here's the interesting thing. In spite of those findings, 93% of the students said that they were satisfied with their personal ethics and character. And 77% of them said, I am better... Than most people I know. That reminds me of a warning the columnist Sidney J. Harris once issued. I love Sidney Harris. He wrote Once we assuage our conscience by calling something a necessary evil, it begins to look more and more necessary and less and less evil. Sin has left the conscience in ruins. Even the best people suffer from some corruption of conscience. And the worst people have their consciences seared as with a hot iron. The smoke alarm you have at home probably has an internal switch triggered by a beam of light. As long as the sensor receives that beam of light unbroken, the alarm remains silent. But if smoke obstructs that beam for a split second, the alarm will sound. Our conscience is like that. If sin blocks the light of God's spirit, the conscience sounds a warning. People with a seared conscience are like people with a smoke alarm that has a dead battery. They miss the warning, and their lives are in danger of going up in flames. A person may have a good conscience and still have guilt. You know, some people's consciences, the warning goes off all the time for them. They have an oversensitive conscience. If it isn't sin that sets it off sometimes, it's a preoccupation with self. That's not a good thing. But other people have a conscience that works relatively well, but is full of guilt. What can we do to deal with guilt? Our authors made clear that religion alone can't do anything to help. Religion tries to help us balance our sins against our good deeds. And some people get very skilled at that. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. For every sin, there's an equal and opposite religious action to balance it. They're religious jugglers, and their act is really quite impressive. And then one day, after years of that, years of toil, they learn that life isn't a balancing act, and it never was. They've been juggling when they were supposed to be dancing. Religion alone cannot cure a guilty conscience. Only the blood of Christ can do that. We must never excuse our sins by saying they aren't that bad or that other people have done worse. We must never try to balance our sins by doing religious things or performing good deeds. It's the wrong way to go about it. Imagine that you turn on your TV and the president's making a speech announcing dramatic cuts to Social Security. Well, you don't want to hear that. So you change the channel, but he's on that channel too. So you change the channel again, but there he is. In fact, he's on every channel. So, you call the place where you bought the TV and you tell them, My TV is not working. <laughs> well, the TV's working fine, and so is the conscience when it announces our guilt. The problem, this is really important to understand, is not our conscience. The problem is our sin. Trying to adjust our conscience by religious deeds and good works is like trying to change the broadcast by adjusting the color on your TV. It's not our conscience, at least in this case, but our sin that needs to be dealt with. And God has dealt with sin through Christ. Stop looking at your conscience and look to the Lamb of God. He shed his blood for you, life for life. A perfect life for an imperfect one. A sinless life for a sinful one. An eternal life for a mortal one. He traded his life for yours. The question now is, have you traded your life For his. Have you trusted him? Have you said yes to him? Or are you still playing the balancing act? As a pastor for years and years, I know that some people have said yes to God. They've trusted Christ for forgiveness, but they're still struggling with guilt over their sins. God may have forgiven them, but they're not going to forgive themselves. They believe their sins belong to some special category. That what they've done is too bad to forgive. That Jesus is not enough for them. They believe a lie. Instead of putting off their sins, which God fully intends for them to do, they put down themselves, which God never intended them to do. Last year, Karen and I We're walking home from church, and we found an indigo bunting by our house. We're always really excited to see an indigo bunting. I mean, they are pretty rare, and they're beautiful. When the artist painted them, he chose the richest blue on his palette. But this bunting was lying on the ground, unconscious. Uh, The buntings are little, but they're aggressive. It had seen its own reflection in the window, and it hurled itself against the glass as though it were attacking an enemy. It hated what it saw in that window, and it assaulted it, and didn't realize until it was too late that it was attacking itself. When you see a reflection of your sins in your conscience, don't stop there. Look past your reflection and see the Savior who died for you. When Satan tempts me to despair, says a a modern hymn, and tells me of the guilt within, Upward, I look and see him there, who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. You say, it's too good to be true. I say, it's so good it must be God. God. Tim Keller put it this way. Here's the gospel. You're more sinful than you ever dared believe. You're more loved than you ever dared hope. And that love found its expression in the blood of Christ that was shed for you. His perfect life for your imperfect one. His sinless life for your sinful one. His eternal life for your mortal one. If you haven't said yes to him yet, what on earth are you waiting for? A special invitation? A personal one? Well, this is it. God is inviting you right here, right now, to come to himself. To become his person by trusting his son. What do you say? Let's pray now. Lord, we wouldn't know all this if it wasn't for your son, Jesus. No one's ever seen you. But God, the only begotten, has made you known, and he did it on a cross of all places. And you have won our hearts. Take possession of your winnings. In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.